Well, if you get a chance after the service, please um, say hi and bye. Uh, give uh, Jeff a word of, of gratitude or encouragement. Let him know some way that he's uh, impacted you if you've uh, had a relationship with him. I'm sure he would love to end today with that moment. So they'll be around. So please, again, take advantage of that. Say goodbye to them and let's send them off well. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Uh, my wife is on the women's retreat. And so I got myself and two children here this morning uh, without her help. So um, yeah, <laughs> which is so bad because she has to do that every other Sunday of our life. So it's really, uh, she's amazing. Um, but we did miss her this weekend. All right, let me, uh, I know we just prayed, but let me pray again. I want to transition us here as we head into a scripture together this morning. So pray with me quickly. Heavenly Father, thank you again for Jeff, for all that uh, he's been able to give uh, and provide uh, for this community for this past year. God, we ask now as we turn our attention to Scripture that you would continue to speak to us through these psalms and that you would use these uh, seemingly random or obscure poems, these ancient poems, to uh, remind us of deep truths about what, uh, what it means to be in relationship with you what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, and what it looks like to do life with you on this journey. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to start us off this morning with this question. What, what do you do? Where do you go when you get stuck? When you're working on something, you have a question, you're, you're doing a project, and you cannot figure it out. What do you do when you get stuck? Right? For most of us, it's this, right? <laughs> We pull out our phone and we Google something or YouTube something to figure out uh, how to get out of that situation. We're, uh, we're trying to teach our kids Spanish. I don't know, I know like five words of Spanish. That's about it. So all the time I'm on this thing going, okay, Google, what's Spanish for whatever? And then it tells me, it's amazing. And my kids think it's magical. We, we turn to this all the time. About a year ago, we were given a, a nice girl. This family that we knew was moving to Italy, and they were getting rid of a bunch of stuff, so they gave us this girl. And I have some barbecue skills, but as I've been expanding my repertoire beyond hamburgers and hot dogs, I find myself in our backyard all the time in front of that grill doing this, watching a video, trying to figure out when am I supposed to flip this piece of meat over. <laughs> and then I want you to think about this. When was the last time that you were really actually lost. Think about that. Think about the, the importance that Google Maps now has in our life. I saw this book uh, a couple of weeks ago in, in a bookstore, and I haven't read it yet, but it's on my list. It's called Never Lost Again, and it, it's all about how Google Maps became Google Maps and all of the work that has gone into making it so that if you have a smartphone, you are literally never lost again. It's amazing how reflexive this has become for us, right? Our phones and ever-present help in trouble. Now, when you get stuck, when you are looking for help, your first instinct in that moment tells a lot about what we really put our trust in. And this question, we're going to dive into this here 
in our psalm this morning. We're in Psalm 121. If you have a Bible, you can open there. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone, one of our ushers will run around and, and get one to you. And by the way, if you don't actually have one, these Bibles are for you to take. So if you want to just take that home with you today, go ahead and do that. We started last week this new series called Pilgrims, and we're looking at the Psalms. We're looking at, in particular, a subsection within the Psalms, Psalm 120 to 134. They're known as the Psalms of Ascents. You might notice that little superscript at the beginning of these poems. These Psalms were songs that the Hebrews sang together. Hebrew pilgrims would sing these songs together as they made their way to Jerusalem, to the temple, for one of the big festivals of the year. A good Hebrew would have done this three times for Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so these journeys, these celebrations, along with the Psalms themselves, were so important, so foundational to their formation. And together, I think they make a significant contribution to our conversation about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, remember, last week I introduced this. This is a very broad definition of the word discipleship. We're thinking about discipleship very simply as formation into a way of life. And what we talked about is that whether we are intentional about it or not, whether we've, we've named it or not, we are all disciples of something. We are constantly being formed, being shaped into some way of life. So to be a disciple of Jesus, then, is to be intentional about being formed into his way of life. And so each of these psalms and the Psalms of Ascent will introduce us to a, an aspect of life that, that is important as we follow Jesus. But I, I wanted to, again, just remind us of sort of the big picture here because these are the, uh, this is the frame on which this conversation hangs. So these psalms are a good guide for us for a couple of reasons. First, they reinforce the truth that discipleship is a journey. We're not, the goal here is not to arrive somewhere, to achieve a certain level of Christian success or however you want to call that. The point is, or, or, or the goal is to be pointed in the right direction, to be moving in a particular direction. Last week in Psalm 120, we saw that we can be headed in the wrong direction. We saw that the, the psalmist speaks of Meshach and Kedar, these places that are not good, that are full of violence and lies. And so step one in this journey is repentance, turning around, heading in a new direction, in a Godward direction. So discipleship is a journey. It is also intentional. There was no accidental journey to Jerusalem. You didn't just sort of stumble out your door one day and, oh, I'm in Jerusalem. It required planning and execution. And this is so important because too often we tend to drift in our discipleship, into being formed, shaped by whatever is going on in the moment right in front of us. But these journeys, three times every year, helped create a structure, a rhythm that fought that drift by bringing intentionality to their formation process. Discipleship is a journey, it is intentional, and then the Psalms of Ascent remind us that discipleship is communal. Our discipleship in the way of Jesus is incomplete if we are trying to do it by ourselves. And that's interesting to me because our, our modern 
models of discipleship, a lot of the conversation these days around this topic is very focused on the individual, on me, on what I am doing, how I am doing it. But that's not what Jesus calls us into. That's not how the Hebrews did formation. Discipleship always takes place in community. So last week, to reinforce that, the communal nature of discipleship, we read Psalm 120 out loud together. I want us to do that same thing today. So with me off the screen, Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So repentance, that's again where we started last Sunday. Repentance, this saying no to the world and yes to God is the first step of the discipleship journey, the first step of saying, I am going to be formed and shaped by the ways of Jesus. And that sounds really great. We love fresh starts, new direction, hitting the reset button. But the reality is, is this journey can be really hard. Those next steps can be really difficult. And when it gets hard, it raises this question of trust, this question of help that the psalm opens up with. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now, if you've been around church for a while, this verse and some of these verses from Psalm 121 are quite popular. And we sing them in worship songs. We like to put them on uh, pictures like this, sort of the inspirational poster psalm thing. Um, You may see that at some point in some church. Very inspiring stuff. Now, here's what's interesting to me about this, though. At the time that these psalms were written and sung by Hebrew pilgrims, everyone looked to the hills for their help. This was a very common thing, a very common idea. Mountains were a place to encounter the divine. They were closer to heaven and therefore holy and sacred. And so when people got in trouble, they looked to the hills. It was no different for the Hebrews. They uh, built Jerusalem, the temple, on a hill. Moses, when he was leading the people out of Egypt, would often interact with God on a hill. So there is some common language being used here, but the author is wanting us to see a significant contrast. So hills and mountains were seen by almost everyone as spiritual places. The hills in this psalm represent locations for alternative forms of worship. And we see this all throughout Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. Here's just one of several examples. This is from 2 Kings where it says, he, Manasseh, the king of Israel at that time, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. What did he do? He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal or Baal, depending on how scholarly you want to sound. He made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. Now file that name in the back of your brain because we're going to talk about Ahab a little bit later. 
and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He rebuilt the high places, these alternative places for worship. So on the journey towards Jerusalem, as these Hebrew pilgrims were making their way towards Jerusalem for one of these celebrations, the hills that they were passing by would have been very enticing to them. These high places would have called out to them like giant billboards. Anyone who's driven uh, you know, down I-5 going up and down California or, or if you've driven across the country, you've, you know this, right? You've been out in the middle of nowhere and it's just billboard after billboard saying, come buy this, come get this, come stop at our rest stop, whatever it might be. The hills were like these giant billboards offering protection from the sun, a potion to keep you from moon madness. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. Magic shoes to protect your feet. Take exit four and two miles, come up to this hill, you will find the help that you need. The hills represent what we might call the human paradigm of discipleship. This is the idea that if you need something, if you lack something, if you need help, there are steps, there is a formula that you can use to get what you need. Maybe more specifically, we might say it this way. It's the idea that if we try hard enough, if we do the right things, if we put in our time, if we work the system, whatever cliche you want to use, if we do those things, we'll get the results that we are looking for. This was the siren song of the hills. Need rain for your crops. Come up on this hill, say a couple of, of, of magical words, and you'll get rain. Want to get pregnant, need kids, come up here to this hill, make the sacrifice to this God, and you will start having children. Are you lost on your journey? Come up to this hill, kill a goat, satisfy, appease this, this God, and you will be refreshed. You will get direction. Now, that sounds kind of weird, right? In our day and age, we don't go up on hills and kill goats, or at least I hope we're not going up on hills and killing goats. But we look for help in a lot of different places, right? There are vast sections of bookstores and the internet dedicated to getting you help. Self-help books, workout and diet plans, relationship guides and gurus, spiritual guides, all these different things to help us on our journey. And of course, back to our phone. If you are stuck, there's always an app for that, right? But the mistake of the human paradigm of discipleship is that it is all about me. And in particular, it's centered around the questions, am I doing enough and am I doing it right? It's also promising. The hills offer us this illusion of control. If I satisfy the right God, if I find the right method, if I read the right book, if I sign up for the right webpage and there are plan. I can make this happen. I'll get what I need. That's why this question is so important. Where does our help come from? The psalmist says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Again, sometimes we read these opening verses of this psalm. We get this very wistful, almost epic picture in our mind of this rugged, 
traveler who looks like a young Clint Eastwood, and he's climbing up a mountain, and he's kind of, he's a little bit beat up, he's kind of discouraged, but he looks up, and, and the clouds part, and the sun shines through, this eagle flies by, something like that, right? And we think, oh yeah, like he gets really inspired to take that next step. And that's all very nice, but it's missing the truth that the psalmist wants us to understand. Looking to the hills is looking in the wrong place. Prophet Jeremiah says it this way, Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. So here the contrast becomes very, very clear. Our help comes from the Lord. Now, the English word Lord can be translated from a couple of different Hebrew words. In this particular psalm, it's translated from the word Yahweh, the personal name for God that he revealed to Israel. So a personal, relational name, but also a name that would have called the reader back to creation. This is where your help comes from. Not the hills, but the one who made the hills. Now, let's continue on here. Verses 3 and 4, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So we know where our help comes from, and now the psalmist is going to start describing for us what that help looks like. The first thing we learn here is that Yahweh does not sleep on the job. You and I, we need to sleep. This is one of the ways that I know that God loves us. Good night of sleep is just so... Wonderful. <laughs> we have two small children, so it becomes all the more precious when you're in that stage of life. When, when our kids have a good night of sleep, everything in our house is better by massive percentage points. Okay, we need to sleep. Creatures need to sleep. God, creator God, does not sleep. This is partly comforting, right? It's good to know that while I'm out here struggling. God is not asleep on the job. But this is about more than comfort. Again, the author wants us to see this contrast between Yahweh and the pagan options available to the traveler on their way to Jerusalem. If you still have your Bibles open, flip over to 1 Kings chapter 18. This is one of my favorite scenes, stories in all of Scripture. This brings us back to that king Ahab. Ahab was the king of Israel at the time, and he, he really he went all in on alternative forms of worship. I mean, he totally went off the rails in seeking out other gods, and in particular, this one god named Baal. And so Yahweh, during this time, uses a prophet named Elijah to communicate his displeasure with the situation. And one of the results of this idolatry is that there's going to be a famine. And so in chapter 17, Elijah communicates that this famine is coming, and in fact it does. And as you might expect, it becomes a significant problem. People are hungry. Ahab is growing concerned. And so he decides to figure out, Ahab decides to try to figure out what to do about this. And the solution that he comes up with is a showdown between his prophets of Baal and Elijah. So what they decide to do is go up on a hill, and they set up two altars, and the idea is that they'll both call out to their God, and whichever God shows up with, uh, with fire, it consumes the altar, that's who the true God is, 
And that's where the solution to this drought will come from. This is, you know, just your classic prophetic duel, as you do. <laughs> so here's what happens. Ahab's guys go first, and they carry on all morning doing all sorts of crazy stuff, chanting and yelling and cutting, and there's blood, and it's all very weird. But nothing happens. Several hours go by, no fire from heaven, and then we get one of the greatest lines in all of Scripture. Elijah says, mocking them, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Elijah is the dream on green of Old Testament prophets. His trash game is trash talk game is good. Now to, to just really summarize quickly what happens here, Elijah gets his turn and the story ends with Yahweh dramatically sending fire to consume his altar. It's this incredible demonstration of the impotence of Baal, the power of Yahweh. Baal was not engaged the same way that Yahweh was. Baal went potty and took naps like a toddler. Meanwhile, Yahweh is an ever-present help in trouble. God does not take naps. He does not check out. He doesn't go for a walk and get lost in thought and forget about us. He is always there, always awake, always engaged. And the key word in this psalm this morning is this, always keeping. Verses 5 and 6, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. This word keep is used six times in this psalm. One of the reasons I love the psalms is because they're poems. And it's sort of a different way of, of thinking about and talking about God. It, it, you know, using metaphor and, and all this vivid language to sort of uh, open up our imagination. And, and yet this psalm is like, I'm just going to pound the point home. <laughs> Forget all this flowery language. God keeps you. He keeps you. He keeps you. He keeps you. This is where your help comes from. Don't go looking somewhere else. <clears throat> now, backtracking a little bit to verse 3, there are, I think, three distinct possibilities for harm that the psalmist lists. There's loose footing, struggling on your journey to take that next step. There's heat from the sun. And then there's this issue of the moon, where we get our word lunacy from. So we might call this, you know, emotional or mental distress. These would have been real issues for the pilgrim on their way to Jerusalem. And we're told, we're promised in this psalm, God keeps your feet secure. He provides shade from the heat of the sun, and he will not allow the moon to afflict you, to strike you. The sun and moon, these are not just random sorts of things or even literal issues that the, the traveler would have faced. The sun and the moon were worshipped as deities on these hills. They were seen as sources of help. But what the psalmist is saying is these, these gods don't, don't want to help you. They want to strike you. They will overcome you. They will demand more and more and more from you, and you will have to appease them. 
And even then, as you're trying to appease them, they might not help you out. They might be asleep. They might be on a walk. Or they, might not, they just might not be that into you. But Yahweh is with you. The word keep appears six times. Five times Yahweh is named. Again, the author does not want us to miss this. Yahweh keeps. Yahweh keeps. This is so important. This is one of the most important truths of discipleship. And I think one of the, one of the areas we get mixed up a lot. We need to understand the witness of God. We, we do not embark on this journey of discipleship so that we can get closer to Jesus. Discipleship is not something we do to get closer to God. It's what we do with him. So you don't have to go looking for him. In fact, Jesus' last words were this, I am with you always to the end of the age. You don't have to go on a journey to find God. God is with us on our life's journey. The psalm closes with this great statement of confidence. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. <clears throat> now, real quick, verse 7 and other verses throughout Scripture that are like it are sometimes misinterpreted to read that nothing bad will ever happen to us. Follow Jesus and your life will be great. They can also be used to manipulate us. If something bad is happening to you, then it's your fault. You're not praying enough. You don't have enough faith. But the promise of Scripture and of this psalm in particular is not that everything will go great for us. There are dangers. The path is not smooth. The sun is hot. Amen? <laughs> the moon could strike us. There are real forces of evil. So the promise is not that everything will go great, but that those evil forces cannot separate us from God. This is the promise of preservation in the face of evil, not the absence of evil itself. The Christian life, discipleship, whatever you want to call it, is not about escaping the challenges of life. It is about walking through that, moving through those with confidence. Confidence that the same God who created the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the mountains, that same God named Yahweh loves you and keeps you and is with you no matter what through depression, through infertility, through frustrations at work through difficulties in your marriage, through financial struggles, through getting dumped, through dealing with disobedient children. Through it all, God is with you. In all of it, all your coming and going now and forever. That's fairly comprehensive. This knowledge of our security, it's repeated all throughout Scripture. Moses spoke this over the people of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
This is the truth. Jesus prayed over us. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And this is the truth Paul encourages us with in his letter to the Romans. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Again, a very comprehensive list. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the biggest mistakes we can make in this process called discipleship is thinking that in the midst of challenges, in the midst of the journey's difficulties, God is not there or God has forgotten me. Sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that God's interest in us sort of waxes and wanes depending on our spiritual temperature. This again, though, is that human paradigm of discipleship fueled by those questions. How am I doing? Am I doing it right? Am I doing enough? Bill Hall, who's written uh, extensively about discipleship, says this. The heart of hell is a soul focused only on itself and its own needs at the expense of others. It's very unlikely we will experience much joy or abundance if we're constantly monitoring, evaluating, bemoaning, or pridefully exulting in how poorly or how well we are doing. And then he says this, grace is so hard. It is an offense to our survival mechanisms, to every system of reward and punishment by which we've survived life. We are simply unready and untrained for grace. But you guys, grace is the story that we are invited into. Grace is the truth that we do not need to appease God. We do not need to earn God's approval. Grace is the reality that Jesus died in our place on a hill to provide forgiveness for our sins. To restore right relationship between us and God, grace is the reality that the cross is the one place we can find help, both in this life and in the life to come. So to use Bill's words, what are your survival mechanisms? Where does your help truly come from? If you've been looking for help in other places, on other hills, today is a great time to turn from those things, to accept the help, the grace provided for us through Jesus' death and resurrection. And even if you've been on this journey for a while, you've been following Jesus for a while, we all experience that drift. We start looking in other places and for other things to help us. When you came in this morning, you should have received a three-by-five card. I want you to take that out now. If you don't have it, there may be some more floating around here. I'm sure you can get, get your hands on one. Here's what I want you guys to do with that this morning. <clears throat> the card is very simply an invitation to name the hills that we've looked to, the other places we've looked to for our help. Maybe we've placed our confidence in achievement, 
or wealth or status. Or maybe we've looked to relationships or our own confidence, or our own competence for confidence. Maybe we've been turning to alcohol or Netflix or social media to numb our pain. Where have you been looking for help? I want you to name that thing or those things. And then the, the card is simply a tool for you, whatever you want to do with that this morning. If you want to keep it, put it in your Bible, put it in your phone, put it somewhere where you will see it regularly, then, then please take it with you. It's for you. If it's helpful, though, we have some baskets on the communion stations, and so if you want to actually physically give that up, turn that over, then feel free to do that as well. We're not going to go through and read them or, or anything like that. How you use it is up to you, but the challenge this morning is to be very specific and very honest about naming those hills, those mechanisms of survival. The confidence we can have on our journey does not come from anything we can do, any formula or rules we can follow. Our confidence comes, our help comes from Yahweh, who created and who sustains all things, and who also cares about you deeply and personally. And so we can be confident that he is with us and he keeps us on this journey. Let's pray.